The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. We are on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And the Man of God or the Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. And one way that we like to do that is by looking to people in the history of the church that has been interested in the 1689 Confession of Faith. Uh, perhaps we can talk a little bit about that in this conversation uh, whenever we talk about Spurgeon. But uh, before we jump right into our topic, we want to welcome Dr. Jeff Chang back to the podcast. So welcome, brother. Austin, good to be with you. This is uh, different than I remember it. All that rock music. And I mean, this is a great intro. Thank you. Uh, thank you, brother. It's, it's good to have you. And uh, congratulations on the release of uh, your new book. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we, we want to talk about uh, that book that has recently come out and uh, the title, Spurgeon the Pastor. And uh, to kick off our conversation, we just want to ask you, why did you write this book and to whom did you write this book for? Yeah, I, I mean, this book traces back to my doctoral work at Midwestern Seminary. Um, as a PhD student, I knew that I wanted to study Spurgeon, but I wasn't sure kind of exactly what about Spurgeon I wanted to look at. Uh, and at that time, uh, I was serving as a, an associate pastor at, at my church in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and uh, th- you know, that was what I was interested in. I wanted to think about Spurgeon as a pastor. I wanted to think about his ecclesiology. Uh, so this book takes, you know, the bulk of my research and, you know, repackages it for, you know, geared towards pastors, towards church leaders. Uh, I wrote it for for that group exactly, you know, folks who are, uh, leading the church. Uh, I think this book could also be helpful just for church members as they uh, want to think through what is it that we as Baptists believe in terms of how we organize the church. Uh, but particularly for pastors and church leaders, you know, I think Spurgeon becomes a, a wonderful conversation partner uh, as we think about, you know, how we go about our ministries. Uh, I, you know, I wrote this book also in mind sort of you know, when I the the circles that I come from tend to be more reformed, uh, more thoughtful about ecclesiology. Um, I know that there's a whole sort of segment evangelicalism that would be very different from that, uh, and yet they would be more drawn to sort of mega church, sort of seeker sensitive kind of philosophies of ministries. Uh, and for that group in particular, I, I wanted to write this book so that Spurgeon could be sort of a again a conversation partner. Here's one guy with a mega church. Uh, and yet the Lord used him mightily. Uh, let's look at how he led his church. And so hopefully this book is getting a, a wide readership. Absolutely. Dr. Chang, I am I'm just thrilled to see more and more quality scholarship being produced on Charles Spurgeon and really broader particular Baptist theology and ecclesiology. I'm, I've been reading uh, Benjamin Keach's The Glory of a True Church here recently mm. and just reflecting yeah, on how there's been there's been a rich recovery 
of um, that Baptistic ecclesiology from um, our particular Baptist forefathers um, during the, the uh, 17th century um, and, and further from there. But regarding your book um, and, and regarding its application to um, to church membership and, and to Spurgeon's insights on that topic, our listeners are likely aware that the Metropolitan Tabernacle had a large membership. It was uh, one of the largest Baptist churches of its respective era. Um, in terms of your research on the Metropolitan Tabernacle, what did church membership look like under Spurgeon's oversight? What was the church membership process like? And is meaningful membership attainable in our day uh, via Spurgeon's pastoral model, particularly geared towards church membership? Yeah. So in terms of uh, membership, you know, Spurgeon would have very much stood in the line of, of the th- kinds of things that Benjamin Keach and Baptists before him would have taught. Uh, and, and that is to say, I mean, to summarize, uh, they would have held uh, regenerate church membership. You know, Spurgeon would have understood that the church is for believers only, uh, for those who have a credible profession of faith. Uh, so over and against their Congregationalist and Presbyterian brothers and sisters, Spurgeon and other Baptists held to the, the necessity of a credible profession of faith before joining the church. And so you see him carrying out that conviction. I mean, that's what he saw lived out in the, in the New Testament church. And that's what he sought to implement in his church. And, uh, and that's an amazing task. I mean, when you, it's, it's hard enough, let's say, if, if you're a pastor of a 100-person church, you know, you've got, let's say, 10 people joining the church. I mean, you've got to examine each one of them, uh, discern a credible profession of faith. That's a big task already. You know, Spurgeon was preaching during a time when, when the Holy Spirit was doing a surprising work through, through his preaching. And uh, uh, there were hundreds coming forward for membership. Uh, and in that time, Spurgeon was even more convinced that he not water down the membership process, but that he keep it as rigorous and as sort of serious as, as ever. So he had a pretty intense membership process. Uh, it was like this six-step membership process that I, that I outlined in my book, you know, from meeting with Spurgeon himself for an interview to meeting uh, with one of the elders uh, to a congregational meeting where that testimony is presented uh, to the congregation appointing messengers to go and visit the candidate's place of work or, or, or place of living and interview others who knew that member um, till finally a congregational vote and then if needed baptism. And then they, they don't become members until they take the Lord's Supper with the church. Uh, so it, it was this amazing kind of rigorous, thoughtful uh, pretty intense kind of membership process. Um, and, you know, what's remarkable is he did this not just for a handful of people, but for thousands and thousands of people who joined his church over the course of, you know, 38 years. Uh, as far as I could tell, looking at the church minute books, they held to that same membership process throughout. You know, and, and this is even when, like I said, hundreds are coming forward for for membership. So it's a ton of work for Spurgeon and for his elders. Um, And then beyond that, I mean, you asked about meaningful membership. Beyond that, it wasn't just bringing them in, but uh, he intended for his elders to to provide pastoral care for every single one of these members. He intended for them to be involved in different ministries, to be active in evangelism and discipleship, uh, for for the church to be a living church, a real church, not just names on a membership role. Uh, And how he went about that, he had all kinds of different strategies. 
Um, <clears throat> I think one of the, you asked about what that looks like in a large church today. You know, I, one of the things I say in my book is you, you probably don't want to just pour over Spurgeon's practices uh, into your church, you know, without much thought, because if you do that, you're probably going to get fired. Um, <clears throat> there are some things that he does that probably don't translate into our day. I mean, if you send messengers from your church to go ask around in some, somebody's place of work about their reputation in the community, you might get a lawsuit in your hands. Um, so, so yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend simply porting things over. Though I think there are some things that we can adapt, uh, you know, uh, in terms of caring for his church. For example, Spurgeon um, divided the membership into districts. And so he had different elders given particular responsibility over different districts. You know, you might, you might think about doing something like that. You know, sometimes small groups function in that way uh, as a way to, to do pastoral care. Uh, but the main thing I want to highlight in my book is just as you watch Spurgeon try to live out his biblical convictions. Again, regenerate church membership, right? That's, that is the fundamental conviction there. Uh, just to be encouraged by the example of this one hardworking brother um, that, that we too can persevere, right? That we too, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of many or few that are coming forward for membership, we want to be faithful to what we see in the scriptures uh, whether it's easy or hard. Uh, and we can be creative in some ways too, but fundamentally the, the, the goal is to hold on to that biblical principle. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for uh, highlighting the importance of regenerate uh, church membership amongst uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, related to regenerate membership, we're curious to ask you um, questions related to confessional subscription or at least Mm-hmm. Um, how Spurgeon thought about uh, using confessions for the membership process. Um, so we do want to open it up a little bit by asking, what did Spurgeon think about the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith? What stories do you know that uh, he has where he says anything related to Second London? And uh, did he use it in the membership process? And uh, did he use it after people became members? What can you uh, speak to related to the Second London? Yes, Spurgeon thought highly of the Second London Confession. Uh, he, in fact, soon after he got there, he began to work with a publisher in his congregation to reprint the 1689 into in little booklet forms, uh, make it available to the people of his church uh, cheaply, um, and to begin using it as sort of a, a discipleship tool. Uh, you know, he encouraged folks to, hey, just grab grab a booklet, grab another Christian, and work through it together, right? I mean, here you're going to have a wonderful distillation of our confession of, of what we believe as Christians. Um, so he, had, he, he thought highly of it, though it is interesting. He also had no problems editing it. <laughs> so he, you might know this, he actually edits the one um, sort of phrase in there about elect infants. Uh, and, you know, Spurgeon held this view that all infants were are to be are, are, will be saved, um, so he he had no problems, sort of adapting it to his teaching to his convictions. Uh, so I think you see in there like a, a kind of interesting balance in Spurgeon, you know, both valuing it, um, you know, making sure that it's available for his people, and passing it out widely, but also not being afraid to sort of make sure that it reflects the teaching of the church, you know. Um, yeah, did he ever use it in the membership process? As far as I know, he didn't. Um, I, I'm sure. Sh- I am sure new members had access to it that they could pick up a copy. You know, they, that they were aware 
that that was the church's statement of faith. In fact, when when they when the, the church built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon laid a copy of the 1689 in the cornerstone, you know, uh, along with the Bible and a few other documents. Uh, but even so, in, in coming in the church, I don't he as far as I know, he didn't sort of examine your understanding of the 1689. Uh, you know, his main thing was examining your understanding of the gospel uh, and hearing about your testimony of conversion. So there's more in the 1689 than that, obviously. Uh, so he, he used it, I think, more as a discipleship tool, less as sort of an evangelistic or kind of gospel testimony sort of tool. And well, kind of as a follow-up question to the, um, the usage of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, in terms of Spurgeon's view on eldership and, and how his church would have made a distinction between elders and pastors, where, where was his perspective on um, whether such a distinction should be made and how does an elder's responsibilities differ from Spurgeon's responsibilities as the pastor? In other words, if he makes that distinction between an elder and a pastor, how would Spurgeon's role be different from the other elders in his local church context? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Spurgeon had a high view of the eldership. Um, you know, when he arrived there, uh, the church basically was organized as a, as a solo pastor, elder kind of model. So he was the lone pastor. He had a board of deacons around him. Uh, a lot of the Baptist churches had gone in that direction in, in, the, in the 19th century. Uh, Sean Wright, another historian, sort of traces that, at least in part, to kind of the Baptists' desire to differentiate themselves from the Presbyterians, right? Um, sort of distinguished kind of Baptist polity and also kind of to, to guard um, congregationalism uh, so that there's only one pastor. Uh, but as Spurgeon comes along, you know, he, he um, is convinced from the New Testament that we see a plurality of elders there. Uh, he reads guys like Benjamin Keach, who uh, clearly talks about a plurality of elders. And, and he's aware that the earliest Baptists had that practice. And so he begins to teach on the, on the matter, uh, begins to just kind of point out 1 Timothy 3, uh, Acts 20, I mean, 1 Peter 5, just all the other texts of Scripture that clearly shows You've got a group of men serving as elders in the church, uh, and their responsibility is to teach and to provide pastoral care. Um, so as he teaches on this, the congregation begins to ask, like, hey, if this is the case, why, why don't we have elders serving in the church? And so by 1859, five years after he, he, he's there, the church adopts uh, this plurality of elders. So now you've got you know, deacons continuing to serve in practical matters. You've got elders giving attention to the spiritual care of the church. And then certainly you've got Spurgeon functioning as a pastor uh, with the teaching ministry and, and pastoral care and leadership. Uh, but Spurgeon, as far as I can tell, he did not distinguish himself from the other elders. He didn't create a separate office in the church. So, again, as far as I can tell, the, his use of the title pastor is more in, in a functional sense, uh, or it's, he uses it synonymously uh, with the other lay elders. Um, yeah, when you read the elders' meetings, I mean, he is often chairing those meetings. Um, but uh, the other elders are sort of speaking into the, the business at hand as much as he is, you know. And you, you do, I don't get the sense when I read elders' meeting minutes there at the tabernacle 
that Spurgeon dominated those meetings, uh, that sort of everything rested on him. But he very much counted on those elders to share in the pastoral work. It's interesting reading those uh, elders' meeting minutes versus reading the deacon meeting minutes. The, the elders' meeting minutes are actually quite boring. <laughs> the deacon's meeting minutes are interesting because they're always dealing with all kinds of interesting logistical and practical challenges in the church. But the elders' meeting minutes, I mean, all you get is just the elders come together and more often than not, it's just a list of names as each elder reports on, hey, how's so-and-so doing? Hey, I met with this person. Hey, how's this person doing? Any, any word back from this person that we're caring for? And I just uh, kind of list name after name of, of the people that the elders are caring for. And that's a good picture of you know the work of the elders. I mean, they were concerned with the spiritual care of the people. Uh, and Spurgeon would go on to say, like, without the work of the elders alongside me, uh, you know, the care of this church would have been a sham. You know, this church would have, would have just, just been a, a bunch of names on a piece of paper. It wouldn't have been a real church. Um, so he, he had a, a really high view of his elders. Uh, he saw himself as a fellow elder among his elders. Uh, he'd never created a separate office for the pastor. Uh, but, but functionally, he understood that in the way Baptists speak, the, the pastor was usually the person particularly devoted to the ministry of the word. Uh, and that's the role that he filled. Just a quick uh, follow-up question uh, related to eldership. Um, I'm curious, just for my own understanding, is this the first time in the history of the church that you're aware of that uh, there's multiple pastors in the in the church at the same time? And perhaps, um, if so, um, I know our listeners may be interested for you to talk a little bit about some of the previous pastors of the church um, without having to go into a long uh, biographical sketch of each of them, but maybe just briefly introducing some of them and uh, talking about what you know of, um, their view of, or at least their convictions of how many pastors should be in the church. So I guess my question more pointedly could be, who were some of the more well-known pastors of the church? And is Spurgeon the first one? Are you talking about the tabernacle? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, for, former well-known pastors uh, of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I mean, uh, William Ryder was the very first pastor. He's not very well-known, but very quickly after him, Benjamin Keach comes along. So we've already talked about him today. Very well-known Baptist pastor. Uh, I believe his signature is on the 1689 Confession. Um, yeah, a significant leader for, for Baptists, uh, early Baptists. There in the 17th century. Another significant pastor after him uh, would have been John Gill uh, in, in the 18th century. Um, John Gill pastors the church for 50 years, and he really becomes kind of the, the theological voice for the Baptists, uh, publishes the Body of Divinity, uh, all his biblical commentaries, uh, many, many sermons. Um, so, so he provides great leadership to the Baptists there in the 18th century. Pastors of church for 50 years, uh, towards his old age, refuses to take on an associate pastor. Uh, he, you know, even as he's growing older, the church is asking, hey, maybe you need some help. You know, you're, you're slowing down quite a bit. And, and Gil basically says, can, can you know, a person have two heads? Like in, in the same way you can't have a church with two pastors. So Gill is strong on kind of, nope, solo pastor. There's only, there can only be one head of the church. Um, after Gill uh, is an energetic young man called John Rippon, uh, also a significant leader in the Baptist, among the Baptists after that time period. 
most known for his sort of lively sermons and his compilation of, of hymns. Um, he also pastors the church for 50 years, and uh, which is just amazing to think about. Two pastors uh, covering 100 years of a church's history. Um, quite remarkable. Uh, he, towards the latter part of his age, he's the one who moves the church from Carter Lane to New Park Street. Um, and New Park Street at the time was kind of in an industrial area, not a great place to relocate the church. Um, John Rippon does it while he's much older, and uh, the church kind of declines after after Rippon. Uh, and, and then you got a number of pastors between Rippon and then until Spurgeon arrives in 1854. So from Keach, Keach would have held, in terms of eldership, yes, he would have had a plurality of elders, other pastors alongside him. Gill and Rippon would have been solo pastors. Uh, and then Spurgeon would have been kind of a recovery of that older Baptist practice of having multiple pastors. Yeah, thank you. Sorry if my uh, impromptu question was a little unclear at first, but I'm glad I asked because the uh, quote you gave of Gill about the two-headed uh, man <laughs> was worth the answer itself. So thank you for that. And uh, uh, transitioning now onto another aspect of uh, Spurgeon's ecclesiology, we want to talk a little bit about baptism. Um, I'm just trying to picture in my mind how a church that had so many converts and such uh, comparatively condensed amount of time, um, how did the church practice baptisms? What were the conditions for baptism, uh, for someone to be baptized? Um, where were the baptismal services held? And uh, as as much as you're uh, able to tell with what you've studied, do you know of how frequently these baptisms would occur? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you, the baptisms would take place uh, as part of the membership process, kind of like I laid out. So if somebody wanted to be baptized, um, they would basically have to go through the membership process, you know, those, that six-step process that I laid out. So uh, that's, that's significant because, you know, Spurgeon could not envision somebody being baptized, but not being a member of the church. You know, to be baptized is to be uh, to be joined to the body of Christ, you know, be united to Christ and His body, uh, and, and to be held accountable to that profession of faith. Um, so, so you would apply for membership. You would go through that, uh, and if all went well, then you would be scheduled for baptism. And when were those services held? Uh, they were held typically on a weekday evening. Uh, I don't. I'm not aware of them baptizing on a Sunday, though. Though that might have happened, I should go. I should look for that some more. Um, typically, I think it would have been like a, on a Monday night service, or maybe even a Thursday night service. Um, in cases of baptisms, you know, there's many coming forward, so uh, they would sort of baptize, group them all together and baptize them all at once. You know, so there you might see twenty or thirty or forty baptisms in a given evening service. Um, they were held in the church. They were held at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So the, Spurgeon had this wonderful baptistry built into the main platform of, of the church building. Uh, it was this kind of heavy marble baptistry. And he was very proud of it. Uh, he, in fact, would sometimes um, even have it filled on a Sunday when nobody was getting baptized, just, just to have it filled, just to have it on display. So there was like no question that this is a Baptist church. <laughs> um, you know, he was, he was very proud. Like, you know, if, if the, um, if the Anglicans can have this little fount, you know, right when you walk in, 
why can't Baptists have our massive baptistry filled and on display, you know, every Sunday, right? Uh, so so they were baptized in the, in the church during the services. Um, and how frequently did they occur? Boy, I mean, one of the more remarkable figures, you know, they record um, whether people join the church by profession, meaning they've already been baptized. So it's just only by profession that they're joining, whether they join by, by transfer, like they're coming from another Baptist church, or whether they join by, um, by baptism. And presumably, if they're joining by baptism, they were probably converted um, there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, you know, or in connection with the ministry of the church somehow. Uh, and when you look at the statistics, at least in the first seven years of his ministry, when there is this like amazing revival going on, um, something like, something crazy, like 85, 90% of the people joining the church are joining by baptism. Um, they are, you know, so sinners, lost people are actually being converted and being baptized. Uh, Spurgeon talks about the, the waters have not stopped stirring. You know, the waters of baptism have not, have not stopped stirring for us because God is doing such an amazing work. Um, yeah, so they took place frequently. I mean, goodness, I, I just, when you read the minute books, it seems like every other week they're doing, or maybe every week, they're doing like baptismal services and dozens of people are coming forward and, and being baptized. It's, it must've been just a hugely encouraging time for that congregation to not only be, you know, voting on people and joining the church, hearing their testimonies, hearing about how God was at work in their evangelism and, and the preaching of the church, but then to get to celebrate that seeing people after people being baptized. You know, it must've been just a wonderful time. Absolutely. I can only imagine living in such an era and uh, just thinking about how much baptism is misunderstood and um, really just abused in many Southern Baptist contexts. It's all about getting numbers. It, it becomes more of a man-centered ordeal versus a, a God-exalting, uh, God-glorifying experience, particularly regarding uh, the work that he has accomplished in bringing about the salvation of lost and perishing sinners, like you pointed out, Dr. Yeah. Chang. So I appreciate that. that well, and, and these days, I mean, there's the practice of spontaneous baptism, which makes right. it even worse, right? As, as people uh, are not held accountable to their profession. Right. It's not even clear what they're professing at that moment. For um, sure. There's, there's no, there's no um, process leading up to baptism. There's no explanation of the, the biblical or theological significance of baptism or the ecclesiological obligations that now stem from baptism and church membership. Right. I mean, there, there's a lot of, a lot of contemporary problems in our day. Um, so it's really good to hear how, how God used Spurgeon and other men like him uh, in generations past to safeguard a, a high view of baptism as conveyed in God's word. There's another thing that I think is, uh, or another ordinance, I should say, uh, I don't want to just reduce it to a thing, another ordinance that has been undermined in um, the past, at least in, in our day, and I would even say probably within the 20th century, and that's the Lord's Supper. This this idea of, of fencing the Lord's Supper, fencing mm -hmm. the Lord's table, it, it it's something that when I first heard it, I was, I was studying covenant theology under Ligon Duncan, and it seemed like it was just exclusively a Presbyterian practice, but uh, little did I know uh, that that this is something that um, it has a rich history and in, in particular Baptist historical context okay. as well. So, Dr. Chang, if, if you wouldn't mind, for the sake of our listeners, would you explain first and foremost 
Um, what does it mean to fence the Lord's t- uh, table? Um, how did Spurgeon's church go about doing this? How did they go about fencing the Lord's table? And um, in our day, how how should we as pastors and as Christians, uh, if our church doesn't fence the Lord's uh, table, so to speak, how, how can we ensure that our mindset is consistent with the concerns that Spurgeon and others have had about safeguarding what we are doing when we partake of the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So fencing the table, I mean, the, the, this practice comes out of the belief. Well, the, um, the teaching that we see in the new Testament about what the Lord's supper is right? in, in the Lord's supper. Uh, we are declaring our unity with other believers. We're declaring our, our unity with Christ. And, um, you know, when we look at the, the New Testament church, I mean, it's just so clear that uh, when they were taking the Lord's Supper, it was with one another. It was with the church. Uh, it was not a time where visitors were present, uh, where non-Christians were present, but this was a, a family meal. Um, and so it was a meal for, for Christians only, uh, particularly those who, and, you know, if you're a Christian, you had, you've been baptized as a Christian. So obviously it's for baptized believers only. Um, and, and that is a practice that carries over into the early church and then throughout church history. Um, so fencing the table then is this practice, you know, for those who are administrating the Lord's Supper to make clear who this meal is for, uh, that, that this meal is for, for Christians, uh, those who have made a public profession of their faith uh, through baptism, and also those who are continuing in that profession, who are living in, in, in ongoing repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, and that's typically demonstrated through membership in a local church. Uh, so, so this practice of fencing the table makes all of that clear in terms of who the meal is for. Now, there was a, there was a big debate uh, in Spurgeon's day. I think that, that debate probably continues. It does continue in our day. But it's the question. It's the sort of struggle that we as Baptists have. You know, what do we do in terms of fencing the table regarding our Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran brothers and sisters, those who have been uh, sprinkled as infants, um, and in our understanding, they have not been baptized, right? Um, if if we require baptism prior to the Lord's Supper, then how can we admit uh, pedo-baptists to the Lord's Supper? How, how can we sort of invite them? So um, many Baptists in Spurgeon's day took, took a, a closed communion position, meaning that um, the, the Lord's table was for uh, baptized believers only, those who have been baptized upon their profession of faith. Uh, Spurgeon wrestled with that. He himself came from a Pado baptist background. Uh, his family was congregationalist. Um, he often worked with Pado baptists in all kinds of ministries. He was happy to partner with them in the gospel, work of the gospel. Uh, he had a sense of sort of evangelical identity beyond sort of his Baptist distinctives. And so... Uh, you know, there, there may be some signs that maybe initially he held to a more closed position, but by the time he gets to London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he, he is, the church is practicing open communion, and he goes along with it. And he becomes kind of a champion for open communion. Uh, a lot of Baptists are going in that direction. Open communion meaning he allows pedo-Baptists to the Lord's table at the tabernacle, even if they haven't been baptized upon a profession of faith. Um uh, however, Spurgeon still wanted to make sure that everybody coming to the table had a credible profession of faith. Um, so 
you know, certainly his own members were uh, were urged to participate. Uh, in fact, um, every member of the church would get a a card with perforated tickets, and those tickets would have unique numbers on them for for each member. And uh, whenever they came to the Lord's table, they would turn in a ticket, and that ticket would sort of function like a communion token, uh, granting them admission to the table, uh, making clear that, that they're a member in good standing. Uh, if you missed three Lord's suppers in a row, then the, the elders would know that, you know, you've, you've not been attending church and they should follow up with you, so make sure you're doing okay. Uh, so all members were obviously welcome to the table. Uh, if you're a visitor, you could also get a ticket, uh, even if you're a Pado Baptist visitor. Uh, but what you need to do though, is come during the week and make an appointment to see an elder of the church. And that elder would interview you. Uh, and I, those interviews would just be like a membership interview. I mean, they'd ask you your understanding of the gospel, ask you your testimony, and then ask you like, what? why are you wanting to take the Lord's Supper here? Uh, why aren't you just taking the Lord's Supper at your own church? And so then you'd explain, oh, I'm traveling for, so, for, for three months or whatever. I'm here in London for, for a visit. I'd love to be able to join you guys. Uh, and so they would give you a ticket, but those tickets would expire. They would only be good for a certain amount of time. Um, and so visitors, with good reason, could also participate in the Lord's Supper, provided that they had a credible profession of faith. Um, so um, Spurgeon really tries to sort of navigate the, the, um, the, two, the two extremes. I mean, the one, you know, holding fast to his Baptist convic convictions on the one hand, but also wanting to give expression to the universal church and um, and yet still hold every visitor sort of accountable uh, as they come to the Lord's table so that they're not in Paul's words, eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Uh, and actually, if you read some of Spurgeon's sermons um, on Lord's Supper Sundays, I mean, he pleads with his congregation, don't come to the table if you're not a Christian. You know, you don't, you don't want to incur God's judgment. Um, you know, for our, our practice today, boy, when it comes to fencing the table, uh, you're, you're exactly right that uh, so many churches are, are careless about these things. Um, I've been in so many churches where the, the person officiating just says, you know, the tables are open, open, you know, just go ahead and whenever you feel ready, go ahead and come on up, you know. Uh, sometimes the officiating person might say, uh, if you believe yourself to be a Christian, then go ahead and come on up. You know, and that's good. I mean, like, at least he's saying you're, you have to be a Christian. But even then, he leaves it entirely on the individual. There is no kind of um, external ecclesiastical verification of one's profession of faith, right? So <clears throat> um, I, you know, in the way I fence the table in my own church, uh, I just say exactly what I said earlier. You know, if you have made a public profession of faith, which is done through baptism, and if you're continuing in that profession of faith, which is done through membership in a gospel preaching church, the same gospel you heard preached here this morning, uh, then you're welcome to the table. And you know, we, we'd be glad to have you. Uh, so that's how I sort of invite visitors to the table. Um, obviously, members are, are will fit those requirements, so they are welcome. Amen. Uh, just another follow-up question. This one's not as long. Um, and I think I may have got the answer from it, from your, uh, from your response to that last question. But uh, what was the frequency in which the church took the Lord's Supper? I heard you say 
Lord's Supper Sunday. So mm. does that tell the answer? Well, when they started, uh, it was once a month. Um, the church got so big that not everybody could be seated at the Lord's table in one sitting. So they moved it to having it twice a month. Uh, but but then once the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was built, there were people pushing for, hey, why can't we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday? So eventually they moved it to a, a weekly thing. However, uh, it, when they moved it to a weekly thing, it was only once a month where they would actually take it in the service um, or in, in the main kind of morning service. Um, when in the other Sundays of the month, uh, they would take it either in the evening service or um, or maybe even Monday. I'm not sure. Um, but the but the sort of one Sunday a month that was in the morning, that was like the great communion. So that was, you know, if you're only going to take it once, go to that service. Um, but for those who would like to take it sort of every every week, there was also they would have that in the evening service at the conclusion of the evening service. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Again, glad I followed up, and uh, uh, we could talk with you, Spurgeon, for many hours. But we do recognize that you have uh, limited time, so we'll begin to uh, draw our conversation uh, to a close. We've been talking about uh, very ecclesiological topics related to Spurgeon and his ministry, including membership, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, eldership. Um, what other things do you write about in this book related to Spurgeon's leadership that you want our listeners to know about? Yeah, the, the very first chapter deals with Spurgeon's preaching. You know, that was um, really the heart of his ministry and um, really the heart of his pastoral care. I mean, his preaching is what held the church together. It's how he shaped the vision of the church. Uh, so such an important part of his ministry. Uh, I also deal with ways in which the church made membership meaningful uh, how they thought about engaging the church in the ministry of the church, engaging the congregation, uh, how they thought about training up pastors and church planting. So, so lots, lots of other topics in there, really trying to give a, a pretty full orbed picture of Spurgeon's pastoral ministry. Um, yeah, and, and in all those things, I mean, what I'm really trying to get at is this idea that Spurgeon in his pastoral ministry was driven by biblical and theological convictions. Uh, not by pragmatism. So behind all those things that, I, that we've been talking about and that I listed, uh, there were theological and biblical ideas that were undergirding them. And uh, those are the principles that drove him. Those are sort of what guided his decisions and his creativity. Uh, but at the end of the day, he, he held fast to those principles and, and really sort of spoke against people who got um, kind of unhelpfully creative and pragmatic in their pastoral ministry. And I think that's that's such a word that we need to hear for our day today. Absolutely. Um, pragmatism seems to be the flavor of the church, especially uh, since the rise of the emerging church movement and and all the easy believism, theology, and ecclesiastical um, features that have infiltrated um, broader American Christianity over the past century. So Dr. Chang, a hearty amen to all that you've said today. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Austin was able to mention all the different topics that we've covered. And before we wrap up our conversation today, do you have any final encouragements related to studying Spurgeon or uh, any final encouragements to, uh, to pastors or listeners who may be uh, listening to today's episode as to uh, what they can glean 
from Spurgeon, particularly in regard to his ecclesiastical convictions? Yeah, I, I've often heard, I've heard um, I think it was John Piper, you know, when he was giving sort of a Spurgeon lecture, he talked about uh, don't try to copy Spurgeon because you just end up killing yourself. Uh, and I think he's exactly right. I mean, Spurgeon is just this phenomenal figure who worked so hard and did so much. Uh, but I guess I, I, I can offer a way in which we can copy Spurgeon because if it's true that everything he did was fundamentally kind of grounded in scripture and girded by biblical and theological principles, then really the main thing about Spurgeon is, is not you know the, the amazing figures and, and numbers that we all talk about when it comes to his ministry. But the main thing about Spurgeon is the fact that he was faithful, uh, that he remained faithful to scripture, that he sought to implement the Bible's vision for pastoral ministry and for the church. Uh, and therefore, for any pastor, um, whatever, wherever the Lord has placed you, and, and whether it's a rural context or city, whether it's small or large, uh, in whatever country of the world, um, we all strive for faithfulness, don't we? We all strive to uh, carry out what we see given to us in Scripture, uh, follow the Scripture's vision for the church and for our calling as pastors. Um, so I think that's the, the encouragement I want pastors to walk away with when it comes to Spurgeon, not so much trying to replicate his numbers and his you know, figures and success and all that stuff by worldly standards. Um, but no, replicate his faithfulness. Um, wherever the Lord places you, be faithful to Scripture. And, uh, and there are many examples from church history to help you in that. Very well said, Dr. Chang. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Covenant Podcast. You've been a tremendous encouragement to us and to our listeners. We want to strongly encourage you to check out Dr. Chang's scholarship on Charles Spurgeon as you have opportunities to do so. Uh, we hope you found today's discussion insightful and edifying. And from the Covenant Podcast, we do wish grace and peace to all of our listeners. Until next time, God bless. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.